this is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. As the big lie continues its ceaseless march across America, Trump should take special pride in the fact that our terrorist-in-chief has unleashed a wave of violence and physical intimidation unprecedented in American politics. If Trump's goal was to divide us as a nation and make us literally fear one another, this too he has achieved. The idea that uh, all of these crazy conspiracy theories and, and, and you know, the sort of, you know, the, I guess it is the crazies that you look at or that, that we hear, they're actually acting under a rational political plan being propagated by the GOP and Trump, which is essentially the votes were illegitimate. Yeah. We wanted to deprive people of votes. And until we see yeah. it as, as you know, uh, politics supported by violence, which is terrorism, uh, we won't be able to solve this problem. This is not about bipartisanship. This is about violence. It's about an entire party uh, endorsing and embracing violence for political gain. We've never seen anything like that. So the threat environment is going to be higher. The description of Trump as a fucking terrorist leader is neither metaphor nor hyperbole. It is the assessment of veteran national security experts. Trump, those experts say, adopted a method known as stochastic terrorism, a process of incitement where the instigator provokes extremist violence under the guise of plausible deniability. Although the exact location, timing, and source of the violence may not be predictable, its occurrence is all but inevitable. When pressed about the incitement, the instigator typically responds with equivocal denials and muted denunciations of violence, or claims to have been joking, as Trump and those speaking on his behalf routinely made. Trump is the um, spiritual, but I will also say operational leader of this domestic terrorism effort. He tells them where to go. He tells them what to do. He tells them why they're angry. Um, and so uh, we need to start at the top, like any counterterrorism effort, which is total isolation of the president of the United States. Impeachment, yes. 25th Amendment, yes. Deplatforming, yes. All of the above. No money, no access to campaign funds. A complete isolation, because as the leader of a terrorist organization, is viewed as a loser, as a not winner, it is harder for him to recruit. Look, he's going to have his radical elements. We will arrest them. We will isolate them. But what we have to make sure is that Donald Trump does not have a second act. I know I sound incredibly harsh right now calling the president uh, this, but we are in the tactical response right now. Enough with the let's unity and stuff. This is a tactical effort right now to make sure that we protect American citizens and, of course, yep. the next president of the United States. Let's start with what happened Monday when the right-wing youth organization Turning Point USA held an event in Idaho, which has long been a hub for extremist right-wing agitation and neo-Nazi organizing. I guess Charlie Kirk was just fishing where the fish are. At this point, we're living under corporate and medical fascism. This is tyranny. When do we get to use the guns? No, and I'm, and, I, and I'm not, that's not a joke. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, literally, where's the line? How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? Kirk's response was not, as you might hope, a strident rejection of the premise. He argued that an embrace of violence was what the left wanted, allowing for the creation of Patriot Act 2.0. When the questioner asked where the line was, 
Kirk didn't say that there was no line that would warrant the use of gun violence for political purposes. Instead, suggesting that the next step was for states to reject federalism. These people are fucking insane, and there's more of them every single day. And it's not just some bearded fucking freak in Idaho looking to go on a purge-style killing spree. More and more people seem to not only subscribe to Trump's paranoia and conspiracy, but feel emboldened to act on their hatred for liberals and Democrats. It's happening all over the place. On the street, in restaurants, where anti-mask agitators scream at hapless waitstaff about Nazi Germany, and worst of all, on airplanes. It ain't the point of the mask, it's the point they're trying to force us. We have a constitutional okay. right, we should not be forced worry, to wear worry. a fucking mask! We should be a fucking... Do we have to wear a mask when we fucking have a flu? Trump, it seems, has caused a total devolution of what's acceptable in polite society. All of a sudden, it's like there's millions of mini fucking Trumps, everyone out to offend and then take offense when others take offense. Have you been to a fucking school board meeting lately? Everyone has gone insane. There were reports of a disturbing Nazi salute at an Ohio school board meeting that was the response to a request to follow masking guidelines. Now Senator Ted Cruz has something to say about it. Now, there's many different ways you can choose to weigh in. This is what Ted Cruz is saying. This was during a judiciary hearing that was supposed to be about addressing possible violence against educators. During this hearing, I counted 20 incidents cited. Of the 20, 15 on their face are nonviolent. They involve things like insults. They involve a Nazi salute. That's one of the examples. My God! A parent did a Nazi salute at a school board because they thought the, the, the policies were oppressive. General Garland is doing a Nazi salute at an elected official. Is that protected by the First Amendment? Yes, it is. Okay. Throughout Trump's presidency, numerous violent actors directly invoked him in his rhetoric, including the mass shooter who murdered 22 people in El Paso, Texas in 2019 whose writings echo Trump's talking point about a supposed migrant invasion of the United States. After Biden's victory, extremists responding to Trump's lies about fraud stalked and menaced public officials, election workers, and Trump's Democratic and Republican critics. Stop the Steal rallies led to beatings, stabbings, and a shooting. When the president's enraged backers roamed the Capitol hallways, some were hunting House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and vowing to hang Mike Pence for refusing to interfere with the election certification. Where are you, Nancy? We're looking for you. Nancy! Oh, Nancy! Nancy! Where are you, Nancy? Then there's what's happening to our secretaries of state. All across this country, they're being targeted for holding free and fair elections. CNN recently reported the terrifying threats received by Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs. Two weeks after the election, armed protesters gathered outside my home and chanted, Katie, come out and play. We are watching you. I never expected that holding this office would result in far-right trolls threatening my children, threatening my husband's employment at a children's hospital, or calling my office saying I deserve to die and asking what is she wearing today so she'll be easy to get. 
Officials and aides and Secretary of State offices in Arizona and other states targeted by former President Donald Trump in his attack on last year's election results are in constant terror nervously watching the people around them at events, checking in their rearview mirrors for cars following them home, and sitting up at night wondering what might happen next. But what concerns me more is the near constant harassment faced by the public servants who administer our elections. Nearly every day, they are on the receiving end of abusive phone calls and emails. In Arizona, orange jumpsuits were mailed to county supervisors. Last November, as election workers tabulated ballots inside the Maricopa County Tabulation Center, armed protesters were a frequent presence outside. We're already seeing high turnover among election staff, and I fear that many more will reach a breaking point and decide that this line of public service is no longer worth it. Law enforcement has never had to think much about protecting secretaries of state, let alone allocating hundreds of thousands of dollars in security, tracking, and follow-up. Their jobs used to be mundane, unexciting, bureaucratic. These are small offices in a handful of states with enormous power in administering elections from mailing ballots to overseeing voting machines to keeping track of counted votes. But then came fucking Donald Trump. These threats aren't just from random psychos. They're part of a larger organized movement paid for by deep-pocketed donors. The end result, besides the erosion of our democracy, will likely be somebody getting killed. For doing my job, counting votes, I'd like to quickly share with you some of the messages sent to me and my family. Tell the truth or your three kids will be fatally shot. Included our address, included my children's names, included a picture of our home. Cops can't help you. Heads on spikes, treasonous schmitz. You betrayed your country. You lied. You're a traitor. Perhaps cuts and bullets will soon arrive at provides my address, names my children, rhino stole election, we steal lives. There are additional threats that my family asked me not to share today because they are so graphic and disturbing. The outcome is exactly what the GOP and Trump wanted. In a recent poll taken by the Brennan Center for Justice, 40% of election and poll workers in the largest jurisdictions in the country have so far said they won't be returning to the job out of their own fears. Other states are seeing drop-offs too. Nearly one in three local election workers said they felt unsafe because their jobs with 17% of those who responded saying that they had received death threats. Nearly one in five election officials now list threats to their lives as a job-related concern. I've pointed this out before, but it's important to reiterate it now. The problem with these false fucking claims of election fraud, these false fucking bullshit, debunked, irrational, garbage claims of election fraud, is that people believe them. Lots and lots of people. They believe them because they trust the people making the claims, like fucking Trump or Kirk. They believe them because people who know they're false think it's useful to pretend they aren't. People believe that the 2020 election was stolen because fucking Trump insists that it was because he's embarrassed that it wasn't. 
because Trump's allies went along with it so he wouldn't be mad at them and so that they could rationalize new limits on voting. Are you trying to say that as of January 20th, that President Trump will be president? That depends on what happens on Wednesday. President Trump won this election. You think the election was stolen? Absolutely. At this point, we do not know who has prevailed in the election. This fraud was systemic, and I dare say it was effective. This is a contested election. President Trump won by a landslide. Hold them this way. The outcome of our presidential election is seized from the hands of voters. We have to make sure that they look into what has been the theft of this presidential election. Joe Biden lost and President Trump won. Whatever happens to President Trump, he is still the elected president. I would love to see this election overturned. No one believes that this guy got 80 million votes. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. No ragtag group of liberal activists will be allowed to steal this election. The president wasn't defeated by huge numbers. In fact, he may not have been defeated at all. Over the next 10 days, we get to see the ballots that are fraudulent. And if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. Trump didn't win. Donald Trump fucking lost. Those are the words he loads hearing. So he's done everything in his power to pretend they aren't true. And as a result, his supporters injured scores of police officers at the Capitol and several gave their lives. As a result, frustrated supporters are wondering out loud when they get to murder the people Trump is saying stole the election. As a result, those terrible thoughts are greeted not with condemnation, but applause. This is just the beginning of a terrifying new reality. Fueled by social media, alienation, and a desire to strike back at those they blame for their position in life, I believe we'll be seeing more and more violence in the weeks and months to come. I hope I'm wrong, but Trump seems intent on pushing the lie as far as he can. And now for the main event. Reckoning with the fear and madness cultivated by Trump requires accountability for him and other leaders who aided in his incitement. In short, the fucker needs to be prosecuted and prosecuted now for his incitement. My next guest on Mea Culpa, Richard Painter, who served as the White House ethics czar under George W. Bush, has made it his mission to hold Trump and his conspirators to account for their terrible crimes by using the law and constitution itself as a sword. As such, he's found the basis for Trump being barred from office despite his failure to be impeached, articulating how the 14th Amendment works in a recent CNN interview. It disqualifies from public office Anyone who has supported an insurrection and the Justice Department needs to appoint a special prosecutor to prosecute everyone involved in the events of that day. Painter is not mincing words here. To him and folks like Norm Eisen, Trump is a dangerous criminal, a terrorist who needs to be prosecuted. He joins me today on Mea Culpa as these issues are being debated on the airwaves as Merrick Garland decides the fate of Steve Bannon and gives little hope that he will go after the former president. Regardless, 
Painter provides a clear roadmap for how to prosecute these men can and should end up behind bars. So let's listen now to that conversation. Okay, so Richard, in response to a Newsweek article which explained what would happen if Trump were subpoenaed and refused to comply, you wrote the following. If Congress subpoenas Trump to testify about January 6th, he can testify and tell the truth, plead the Fifth Amendment, right not to incriminate himself or go to jail. That's what the law says. Now let's see what happens. I'm curious what you think will actually happen. Will the Garland DOJ prosecute Trump for contempt should he refuse to testify? Well, we'll see what happens with Steve Bannon, uh, who has already been voted in contempt. And now uh, the full House of Representatives uh, will hold him in contempt. And then the Department of Justice will have to decide whether to prosecute. I believe there'd be no excuse uh, for the Department of Justice not to prosecute someone who has been held in contempt of Congress, refuses to testify, uh, despite being called to testify. And uh, DOJ uh, proceeding against the ban will send a very clear message to Donald Trump that he also will be held accountable if he is called to testify and he refuses to do so. Uh, if DOJ uh, backs off and does not take action, uh, with respect to Steve Bannon's failure to testify, then that sends the exact opposite message to Donald Trump, that he can do whatever he please and flout congressional subpoenas because DOJ will not enforce the law. So we're going to see what happens. I believe that DOJ in this instance, with respect to January 6, is taking the investigation very seriously and will prosecute Mr. Bannon if he refuses to testify. I mean, he's no different than anybody else right now. He no longer has the protection of the Barr Memorandum that you can't indict a sitting president. Right now, he is just former president. He's Joe Citizen. What makes him think that he's any different than anyone else? Why is he any different than Steve Bannon or any of us that actually um, received a subpoena? I only received one out of the nine different times that I was requested to come in and to speak to different congressional um, committees. Only the first time, uh, Jay Sekulow told me not to respond, uh, at which point I got a subpoena. But what, what makes Trump think he's different than anybody else, any other Joe citizen? Well, there are two problems here. One is our conception of the presidency, and the second is Donald Trump himself. Starting with the presidency, uh, this notion that a sitting president cannot be indicted is just wrong. And that goes back to the Nixon era and a 1973 memo uh, from the Office of Legal Counsel and another memo in 2000 with respect to Bill Clinton. And then, yes, there was another memo uh, from William Barr or to William Barr, from probably Office of Legal Counsel has not been disclosed yet, saying the same thing, that these are just internal DOJ memos saying a sitting president cannot be indicted. DOJ, of course, is staffed by political appointees of the president who don't want to indict their boss. But there's no support for that position in the law. I have a, a recent law review article that's uh, posted online on that, and I've written several op-eds on that point. Uh, so one thing the Garland Justice Department needs to do is reverse that position and say, yes, a sitting president can be indicted. Nobody is above the law. Uh, no president is above the law. The second problem is Donald Trump himself. Donald Trump is someone who's always believed that he is above the law, that he does whatever he wants, that money is power, 
that he could buy influence in New York City to get his building projects done, that his political influence let him get whatever he wanted in life, that his father's money, uh, connections, and so forth. Um, and so he has been someone who has flouted the law from day one. And if he can get away with it, he's going to do it. Uh, so there needs to be a clear message from the Department of Justice, once again, that is a former president. Uh, he does not want to have the, um, uh, the executive privilege to assert uh, that's Joe Biden's decision. And he is an ordinary citizen, just like everyone else. And he's going to be held accountable under the law. And I don't think he has been held accountable for a long time. And that's part of our problem with Donald Trump. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Representative Jamie Raskin from Maryland turned around and he was asked the question about Donald Trump pleading the fifth. Now, of course, we can go back all the way to 2018 when he said only mobsters plead the fifth. But uh, Jamie Raskin was asked a question, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that his response was Donald Trump you know, has the right to plead the fifth. Uh, but nevertheless, he still would have to show up if, in fact, he received that subpoena. If he does plead the fifth, if Steve Bannon shows up in front of the committee and pleads the Fifth Amendment, what happens then, right? Can they hold him uh, for some other obstruction or can they hold Trump for obstruction, for telling Steve Bannon not to. There's so much that's going on here. If you would, Richard, unpack this for me and my listeners. Yep. Yeah, yeah. um, Steve Bannon does need to show up. And then if he's going to play the Fifth Amendment, we could take it from there. And there are a number of ways to work around that, particularly with the uh, cooperation of the Department of Justice. If he's given immunity from prosecution uh, for anything he says, uh, that often can be used to circumvent the Fifth Amendment claim of uh, a privilege not to incriminate oneself. Uh, they just say, look, we will not prosecute you for whatever you disclose, but you have to answer the questions. And uh, that's one approach. A number of other approaches as well. First step is to get Steve Bannon in front of that committee, quit dodging that subpoena, and then he can decide whether or not to plead the Fifth. And then the same thing if Donald Trump or anyone else is called to testify. And we may have to call members of Congress or members of the United States Senate uh, who may very well have known what was going on on January 6th. And once again, if they want to play the fifth, well, just fine. Uh, but uh, we can deal with that. But let's get them in front of the committee. Anybody who has evidence that's relevant to this committee, to this investigation, must testify. Now, I think one of the biggest problems, at least it is for me, and I know it is for many friends who I speak to, everybody sort of, we have Trump fatigue. We're just sort of tired of the bullshit of Donald Trump doing what he wants, uh, refusing to um, appear or refusing to respond, telling people like Mark Meadows, Steve Bannon, Dan Scavino, Kesh Patel, and so many others, you don't need to adhere to the congressional subpoena power. Don't show up. I can tell you emphatically that during the Mueller investigation, you may recall that Trump was asked to answer a series of questions under oath. And he had, a, he had a, an army of attorneys from uh, Jay Sekulow to, um, I don't even know how many that there were, um, Ty Cobb, etc. There was just a whole multitude of attorneys working on all of his answers. And ultimately what we found out down the road was that he lied. And you may remember one of the things that actually um, 
what's his name, was indicted uh, for, which was providing him, Paul Manafort was indicted for, was providing Trump with the answers to the interrogatories that he was provided. You, you remember that whole scenario? Yes. And what we found out down the road, based upon some of the good work by the news and FOIA requests, is that Trump was not truthful. What a shocker, right? Uh, he was not truthful in the responses to the interrogatories that he gave to Congress. Why is there no investigation into that? Again, just because he was the sitting president at the time under the Barr memorandum, he could not be indicted. But what about now? He lied to Congress. That's one of the charges that was brought against me. My lie was predicated on how many times I spoke to Trump about a failed real estate project in Moscow, the Trump Tower Moscow project, as it was called. I stated three. The true answer was 10. Certainly, that pales in comparison to lying to Congress about your involvement altogether in, you know, the Russian collusion and what he knew or didn't know, like, for example, the Roger Stone conversation that he had um, where Roger told him that Julian Assange just got off the phone with him. And in a couple of days, there's going to be a massive dump of emails that's going to really damage the Clinton campaign. These were all questions that were asked that he lied. Why is there no investigation into that? Uh, the Department of Justice has not done what they need to do, which is to appoint a special counsel uh, to investigate the conduct of Donald Trump. Uh, and that is uh, his conduct in office starting in 2017 uh, with the firing of James Comey, everything that's outlined in part two of the Mueller report, going forward to the fact that he lied to Bob Mueller and uh, then going forward to the Ukraine matter in which he uh, sought to um, uh, coerce uh, through bribery um, Ukraine into investigating Joe Biden, the matter for which he was impeached the first time. Uh, running all the way on through January 6th. The statute of limitations will expire. There's a five-year statute of limitations on obstruction of justice. Um, and that will start to expire next spring with respect to the conduct in 2017, including the firing of James Comey. In other words, part two of the Mueller report, which is a roadmap for the indictment of Donald Trump uh, that was paid for with millions of dollars of taxpayer money, uh, was a clear case of obstruction of justice by Donald Trump laid forth in part two of the Mueller report. All of that will be useless if there's not an indictment brought within the statute of limitations. I have called for the Justice Department to appoint a special prosecutor. Merrick Garland does not want to prosecute a former president. That's okay. I don't think a political appointee of Joe Biden should prosecute a former president. What he should do is appoint a special prosecutor, someone like Bob Mueller, who will be told, to look at everything from part two of the Mueller report all the way up through January 6th and the conduct of Donald Trump on the day he left office, uh, everything including the uh, conduct during the election and asking the Georgia Secretary of State to come up with 11,000 votes. I mean, this goes on and on and on. Criminal conduct by a president while he was in office, all of it needs to be investigated and if crimes were committed, they need to be prosecuted. This is not a political judgment call from Merrick Garland to make. He needs to appoint the special prosecutor. And I've urged that repeatedly in an op-ed with MSNBC and in several op-eds co-authored with uh, Professor Claire Finkelstein of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, it's absolutely critical we have that special prosecutor. It's late October, statute of limitations 
are going to start to expire in a matter of months. And DOJ needs to get off the dime and do their job. Yeah, and I say this all the time here on Maya Culpa. I, I was so excited when I heard that Merrick Garland was in the consideration and then became the um, attorney general because I actually thought that he was going to do the exact opposite of Bill Barr. Now, Bill Barr, as we all know, through Donald Trump, it, it was the complete weaponization of the Justice Department. And here with Merrick Garland, we had a much more... Um, a much more respectful attorney general that was going to go on rule of law, that was going to create these special counsel processes for the multitude of crimes that were not just committed by Donald Trump, but by others as well who were his sycophantic followers. For example, a Rudy Giuliani, uh, for example, a Matt Gates, the Josh Hawley's, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. But it didn't happen. And I don't understand how Merrick Garland is taking this, this position of non-reaction when, truthfully, nobody has faith in the Justice Department anymore. There's a, I'm writing a second book based upon what happened to me from the beginning all the way to the unconstitutional remand called the Department of Injustice, because that's really what it became under Trump and Bill Barr. It became Donald Trump's Department of Justice. And as you know, anything with Donald Trump and... Department of Justice really becomes the Department of Injustice. They become his hit squad, which is what Bill Barr became. But why is Merrick Garland just sitting on his thumbs? Why is he doing nothing? In the case with Stormy Daniels and the hush money payment, I think on Thursday, the statute of limitations may be running on that claim. How is it possible that I end up in prison for what we all know Donald Trump was the person who benefited from it. He was the person who directed me to do it. He is, as I stated in my, in, my, in my statement, he is individual number one. How is it that this guy ends up, you know, avoiding any consequences? Well, the problem uh, with the uh, Justice Department right now is it's gone to the opposite extreme from the Bill Barr Justice Department. The Bill Barr Justice Department uh, aggressively pursued Donald Trump's enemies. Uh, and uh, at the same time protected his friends, was heavily politicized. Uh, what uh, the Justice Department appears to be doing now, with some exceptions, is making a political judgment call not to per, uh, criminally prosecute President Biden's political opponents, including Donald Trump, even if they committed crimes. In other words, bending over backwards to be supposedly politically impartial. The problem is that that's not impartial. That's not what justice is. The Justice Department needs to prosecute anyone who commits a crime. That could include a current president. That could include a former president, a current government official, member of Congress, or former government official, or anyone else. If you commit a crime, you get prosecuted. If you don't, you don't. This shouldn't be a political judgment call. And I fully understand that Merrick Garland doesn't want himself direct the prosecution of the former president, but he needs to appoint the special prosecutor. We need to have impartial justice. And we can't go from these extremes of uh, using the Justice Department as a weapon against political opponents under Bill Barr to then turn around and saying, well, we'll throw up our hands. We'll only look forward. We'll never look back. 
Well, every criminal out there would say, let's look forward, let's not look back. We can empty our prisons on that philosophy. And that's not the role of the Department of Justice. No, it is not. Let, let's, let's jump down and go back into Steve Bannon here for a second. Um, you tweeted out, it's slammer time. Can you explain to me and to my listeners how that will work and how long will it take to see real and meaningful accountability? Because here's what we know. There were four individuals that were being subpoenaed, and this is obviously just the first round. So you have Steve Bannon, Kesh Patel, Dan Scavino, and Mark Meadows. Now, none of the three others took the position that Steve Bannon took. And Steve Bannon's position is just... Just like Steve Bannon's fucking batshit crazy, and it doesn't have any reality based to it. But Dan Scavino went into hiding, ultimately accepted service of process of the um, subpoena. Kesh Patel and Mark Meadows have lawyered up and that obviously they are now speaking to the committee for their hearings and obviously setting the ground rules. But only Steve Bannon came out and made a statement and through his you know, lawyers, that Mr. Bannon's communications with President Trump on the matters at issue in the subpoena are well within the scope of both the presidential communications and deliberative process executive privileges. And as a result, therefore, he will not testify and he does not feel that he has to come in. Obviously, that's where your tweet, it's slammer time, comes from. Can you unpack this for my listeners? Executive privilege belongs to the president of the United States. There's one president at a time. And so if Donald Trump, when he was president, had wanted to disclose communications in the White House records uh, between President Obama and his advisors, he could have done so. That is a prerogative of the president to decide when to assert executive privilege and when not. And furthermore, the law of executive privilege is very unclear. Remember that the Supreme Court of the United States ordered Richard Nixon to turn over his tape recordings of his personal conversations to the special prosecutor, even though President Nixon asserted executive privilege. So the law is uncertain on executive privilege. Uh, it is justified in some cases, particularly if there's national security information involved, sometimes not. But the only person who has the power to assert the executive privilege is the sitting president. That is Joe Biden. With respect to January 6th, Joe Biden has decided not to assert the executive privilege. There are other areas where he has protected confidential communications in the Trump White House and has asserted the executive privilege. I wrote two op-eds with Professor Claire Finkelstein, one in the Washington Post and one in Slate, uh, strongly criticizing DOJ for protecting Donald Trump's executive privilege. But the decision was made by Joe Biden and the Department of Justice, that there is no executive privilege with respect to January 6th. It will not be asserted. So Steve Bannon has no right to say there's an executive privilege. He doesn't own it, and neither does the former president. The executive privilege is not asserted by the former guy sitting in a golf court, in a golf cart down in Florida. That's just not how it works. So these guys need to show up in front of Congress. They no-show, they go to the slammer. It's that simple. You know, you disobey a court order, you, you flout the order of a judge? Well, we know what happens. These people are not above the law. Well, it's funny because that's exactly what he's doing. He's sitting at Mar-a-Lago with a whole group of sycophantic billionaires, right, that made a shit ton of money during his presidency, and they want him back. 
because for them it's all about the it's all about the Benjamins. They don't care about our constitution. They don't care about democracy. Their feeling is that they're above the law themselves. But Bannon actually presents a really interesting challenge to the committee. If you if you look at it in terms of their ability to um, compel uh, these Trump loyalists to come in and to um, appear and to provide information uh, to the committee, which is so desperately needed. We as a country, we as the citizens of this country, have a right to know exactly what was taking place on January 6th. We have a right to know whether or not Donald was behind it, whether or not Rudy Giuliani was behind it, whether, you know, um, Steve Bannon was behind it. But where Steve Bannon comes in, in my estimation, and poses a very significant problem is he's sort of the, the front man for what other Trump loyalists could ultimately do. So if he gets up again, and we're going to talk about this at length during this conversation, if he invokes the Fifth Amendment. So if Bannon is compelled to testify to avoid jail, and he just simply invokes the Fifth Amendment, what then can we expect to get out of Bannon in the long run, as well as these other witnesses who now won't refuse the subpoenas? They'll show up. And they'll just copy exactly what Steve Bannon did, which, of course, will ultimately frustrate the committee. Well, we'll see who, who wants to assert the Fifth Amendment. Obviously, there's a political price to pay for that. For example, if um, a candidate for Congress uh, were to assert the Fifth Amendment, we'd hope there'd be a political price to pay for that. Steve Bannon, I don't put that beyond him. Uh, but once again, if he asserts the Fifth Amendment, we can go back to the Department of Justice and see if we're going to uh, be willing to offer immunity from prosecution and then force him to testify. There is a way to work around the Fifth Amendment assertion. But the most important thing is to get him in there where he's got to make a decision. Is he going to assert the Fifth or not? And then if he does, we go back to DOJ and see what we can do to work around the Fifth Amendment. Uh, but if he refuses to show up, uh, and uh, and testify at all, that's where I think he needs to go to jail. Well, how long do you think before that they actually hold Bannon um, responsible for violating the subpoena? We know we all just listened to the entire joke of a, of a hearing, right, where they had Merrick Garland uh, up before the committee. Now all of a sudden we know that they took the vote and they're going to hold Bannon uh, criminally liable if he doesn't, uh, in contempt if he doesn't appear before the committee. Okay, how long is this going to take? It goes back to my opening statement to you. We all have fucking Trump fatigue. We are just tired of watching this process acting like it's sludged through a strainer. It's like molasses, right, rolling down a hill. It is painfully slow. And... Trump knows this. This is exactly what he does. This is exactly his game plan. This is to slow walk the entire process so that we get to the 2022 midterms. And then the hope is that, of course, that he's able to, or it's not he, that the process just because Biden is not doing what he promised to do and maybe it'll change the House and the Senate Make most probably not the Senate, but possibly, you know, the House. Who knows? All I know is Trump's only out is to turn Congress to his favor. And then, of course, they'll get rid of this the same way that they got rid of his two impeachments. 
Yeah, he's, he can draw on that strategy. Uh, and obviously, if the Department of Justice does not want to appoint a special prosecutor, um, then uh, that uh, gives uh, Donald Trump and his supporters that much more of an advantage. Uh, and that's why the Department of Justice absolutely needs to do that and get going. This shouldn't just be up to a congressional investigation and congressional committees. We saw how politicized it was last week when Merrick Garland showed up uh, for his testimony. And uh, we had various questions about Hunter Biden artwork. Uh, not that that's a, um, a big issue right now for the Department of Justice, but I've you know opposed the way they're handling the, um, the Hunter Biden art sales and so forth. But that's not the issue for the Department of Justice. There was an insurrection on January 6th. Uh, there was criminal activity uh, after the election with respect to trying to uh, reverse the election results, solicitation of election fraud. We had other criminal activity during the Trump administration. We needed an independent counsel to be appointed now. And that would be the message to Mayor Garland. Um, and you know, I will emphasize that under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, uh, the disqualification clause, no one who gave aid or comfort to an insurrection uh, is permitted to hold public office. If you have previously held office and sworn an oath of loyalty to the United States, as Donald Trump did, as our members of Congress, House and Senate have done, and then you gave aid or comfort to an insurrection, you are disqualified from public office under 14th Amendment, Section 3. And that is one more reason. It is critically important for the Department of Justice to appoint the special counsel to conduct the investigation and for the January 6th committee to proceed so we can have a determination as to who gave aid and comfort to this insurrection. We expelled members of the House and Senate and disqualified others from public office after the Civil War. That's the last time we had an insurrection in this country and we can do it today. Donald Trump, I believe, based on the evidence I've seen, is disqualified from holding public office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because from what I have seen, he did give aid and comfort to the insurrection of January 6th. And whatever happened to Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the Democrats adage that no one is above the law. Trump is actually making a mockery out of not just the adage, but our, our constitution, the laws of this country. Right? And then what bothers me more than anything, and think about how sad it is that the DOJ is leaving um, all of this, meaning Donald Trump and his potential future in politics again, into the hands of the various different district attorneys and attorney generals in the multitude of cases that they have, whether it's New York, Georgia, uh, D.C., etc. I mean, that's pretty sad. Don't you agree? Yes, I am very concerned about this. Uh, and the fact that the Department of Justice has not been willing to appoint a special prosecutor. And there are too many people out there who say, well, we got Trump fatigue. We're tired of the guy. He, he's not going to come back. Uh, you know, the, this insurrection failed. It's no big deal. Well, it doesn't always work out that way. And what we have is an insurrection movement uh, with right-wing extremists uh, that, by the way, is taking advantage of the rightful anger of veterans who served in Afghanistan and Iraq rightful anger of veterans who were watching the way that situation was handled, not just by President Biden, but by President Trump and others, predecessors. Uh, we have a situation where a lot of people feel the economy is still not working for them. So there's a lot of resentment out there. And Donald Trump is very good 
that uh, uh, in, invoking public uh, outrage with conspiracy theories and directing anger at uh, minorities, at Democrats, at all his political opponents. And the conspiracy theories are rampant now. Uh, they're spreading throughout our society. And Donald Trump is an expert at that. And this attempted insurrection of January 6th, we need to take seriously. And I remind anyone who's a student of history would know that in 1923, they had an attempted insurrection in Munich, Germany, in the beer hall, led uh, by uh, Adolf Hitler and a whole bunch of people, uh, many of whom were very bitter um, military veterans from the First World War and political extremists. And they did lock some people up for a little while, but not long enough. Those people came back 10 years later, and we know what they did. And if we don't take insurrection seriously in this country, and we don't enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the Disqualification Clause, and we let insurrectionists back into a position of power, we are jeopardizing our democracy. And it is a very dangerous thing when we watch uh, what is going on, um, what happened on January 6th, the rhetoric, the conspiracy theories, not all the comparisons, of course, to what happened to the Weimar Republic uh, you know, are exactly the same, but this is how democracies destroy themselves. We have to enforce the law, including the law against insurrection, and we need to enforce it against everybody, and DOJ needs to appoint a special prosecutor. Yeah, but you are certainly right when it comes to Trump and his ability in, to create a narrative that is not it's not legitimate. It's not real. It's just, again, it's made up in his mind. And he has this great ability. Um, I mean, one of the things that he's planning, of course, on doing is he goes out and he's going to try to be a kingmaker in 2022, even though I know he's not going to run in 2024. And he'll ultimately show his hand at the very end after he grifts another couple hundred million out of his stupid supporters. But I keep taking offense to people who talk to me about the Afghanistan withdrawal as a failure. Interestingly enough, when they had um, uh, the U.S. generals uh, up on Capitol Hill testifying, they referred to the Afghanistan troop withdrawal, something interesting, as a logistical success, but a strategic failure with over 125,000 individuals moved uh, in a very short period of time, while we were still at war with Afghanistan. I mean, uh, I know General Mark Milley uh, made you know statements like that. It's a strategic failure because nothing was done over 20 years in Afghanistan in order to change you know um, the government, in order to help the people. But logistically, you have to acknowledge that it was a success. I mean, moving that, if this was under the Trump administration, nobody would have gotten out. What he would have done is he would have said, all right, everybody, just go ahead, leave, do whatever it is that you need to do. Donald Trump never had a plan. And I, and I question anybody who's listening to this program. Think about one program that Donald Trump actually put out when he turned around and he claimed, you know, we're going to build the wall. Was there ever a plan on how to build the wall when he wanted to stop the influx of immigration? Was there ever an immigration plan when he turned around? He claimed that there was a, 
Uh, a Muslim ban? Was there ever really any type of plan for that other than to shut the borders? Or even with the pandemic, with the COVID relief, was there ever a plan in order to get vaccinations into the arms of Americans? The answer is no. What he does is he shits on something. He tells it it's no good. And we all know that it's not good. Afghanistan 20 years ago wasn't good. It wasn't good 15 years ago, 10 years ago, or five years ago when Trump took over the White House. It just has never been a good thing. But we all know that. But he never had a plan with anything in order to make it better. All he promises you is, don't worry. I'm going to make it beautiful. I'm going to fix the whole mess. It's not that easy, folks. This is what I do. Meanwhile, what does he do? He does nothing. And that's really the truth. And that's the sad thing about having someone like Donald Trump sitting in power. He was a, not only a dishonest man, and I believe psychologically um, deranged in many respects, an extreme narcissist, but he was grossly incompetent. It's Donald Trump who cut the deal with the Taliban. Donald Trump cut a deal in which he promised withdrawal of our troops from Afghanistan in very short order. He cut a deal with the Taliban and he said that the Taliban would go after the bad guys. Is it the Taliban who had been supporting terrorism in 2001, including the 9-11 attacks, who had been fighting our military and killing our troops for almost 20 years, the Taliban were somehow the good guys. That's what Donald Trump was saying, is he cut that deal with the Taliban and did photo ops and had his secretary of state do photo ops with the Taliban. And that's what set this up. Now, I will acknowledge that we uh, had a very difficult situation in Afghanistan from day one, and that the Bush administration uh, may very well have set expectations way too high as to what we could accomplish. What we could accomplish is what we did, which is to go in there and get a lot of the bad guys and kill Osama bin Laden. Then we need to get out. The idea that we were going to establish democracy in Afghanistan, particularly if we did not have the support of the rest of the world, uh, was going to be an uh, unfulfillable promise. And we did go too far in the Bush administration with respect to promising that much and then getting involved in Iraq, which, of course, lost us the support of a lot of our allies. And then a whole bunch of other things that happened, including the torture program. And then we had eight years of the Obama administration where they got Osama bin Laden. Yes, they killed some terrorists, but they kicked the can down on the road with respect to an exit from Afghanistan. Donald Trump, what did he do? He did nothing. He just sat there and let things get worse. There was corruption in Afghanistan, corruption in the Afghan government. It was a mess. Yes, we needed to get out. Should we have gotten out and promised to get out this quickly, which is what Donald Trump did, uh, in effect, setting up an agreement that tied Joe Biden's hands? No, that was a very unwise thing to do. I think that Joe Biden should refuse to go along with the agreement and should have spread out the withdrawal and done this in a, in a, over a longer period of time. We probably would have avoided some of the debacle here. So I don't agree with the strategic decisions under President Biden either. But let's keep in mind that Donald Trump teed this up by working a deal between the United States and the Taliban and committing the United States to getting out within short order. And the one thing a new president does not want to have to do is go back on a deal with foreign powers, including here, even though it was a deal with a terrorist organization that was worked out by a predecessor. And that's what Donald Trump did. He suddenly turns terrorists 
into the good guys who are going to help him fight bad guys. He really set up Joe Biden on this thing. And then he lies about it. So if I were only there, if I were only still in the White House, none of this would have happened. I don't know. What do you imagine? We'd be sitting there holding hands with the Taliban saying, saying come by. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, only only Donald Trump thinks he can have pulled anything off. Now, let me ask you this, Richard. With the GOP set to block the voting bill again, the necessity of abolishing this filibuster becomes really of paramount importance. You tweeted the other day, it's time to put an end to the Senate filibuster for good. Along with Jim Crow and Marxism, the filibuster belongs on the ash heap of history. Let's abolish it now. If you would, discuss with me and my listeners what measures can really, I mean, I, I mean, really and truly be taken before it's too late and we lose the House and Senate because of the GOP's manipulation of the ballot, redistricting, and other moves that seek to, to disqualify voters uh, of color and other undemocratic measures. Well, I, I think that the president needs to sit down with Senator Manchin and a few of the senators on the Democratic side. And I believe some of the senators on the Republican side ought to be opposed, Senator Collins of Maine and others. And there needs to be an understanding the filibuster has got to go. You can vote the way you want on the legislation. You can be in favor of the voting rights bill or against the voting rights bill, the spending bill, yes or no. But the filibuster is unacceptable. Uh, keep in mind, the Senate already is not a Democratic body. California gets two senators, and so does Wyoming and Rhode Island get two senators. Uh, and that is not proportional representation. The House of Representatives has proportional representation. But we already have a Senate that does not reflect the population of the country. To compound that lack of democratic representation in the Senate, which is embodied in the Constitution, the senators themselves come up with a filibuster. That's not in the Constitution. In other words, they have created a mechanism where you need a supermajority of 60 votes to get anything through the Senate. Well, if the founders had intended that, they would have put that in the Constitution, that you need 60 votes to get something through the Senate. It's not there. So this is a deliberate flouting of the constitutional design by the senators who've done this to enhance their own political power. This filibuster has been used by both political bodies, most notoriously by the Democrats, at least the Southern Democrats, in the civil rights era to block civil rights legislation. And the filibuster was finally broken with the cooperation of Republicans and Northern uh, more moderate and liberal Democrats. The filibuster needs to go. And it has a past that is very much connected with the history of racism in this country. It's anti-democratic. It should not be used by either party. I've heard Democrats urging the use of the filibuster back in the Bush era uh, and defending it. It is unacceptable. And I think it's just time to move on. And that has nothing to do with political party. That has to do with basic democratic principles. Well, interesting, because Biden made an interesting statement the other day when he said that as a result of the 50-50 um, Senate, um, the way it's compromised, uh, the way it exists right now, um, every senator becomes a president because they can change whatever they want. They can stall things. But I want you to allow me for a second to play devil's advocate uh, on this filibuster issue. Now, say, for example, the GOP narrowly takes back both the House and the Senate in 2022. And now suddenly, we're all faced with a slew of frightening, I mean, really fucking frightening MAGA legislation that can only be stymied through use of the filibuster. 
if we get rid of the filibuster, are we potentially losing a valuable tool that could prevent these measures from passing, as you talked about how it was originally um, beneficial in terms of uh, knocking out all of those racial discriminatory uh, legislations? Uh, or is the present state so dire that it requires acting no matter what the future risk is? Well, there are supermajority provisions built into the Constitution where the framers believe they're appropriate. And we could, by amending the Constitution, uh, impose additional supermajority uh, provisions. But remember, in order to get a bill enacted in a law, you need the support of the president, the majority of the House, the majority of the Senate. Uh, granted, Donald Trump did have that for the first two years of his administration and enacted some quite massive tax cuts. And for one reason or another, Democrats don't seem to have been able to filibuster that. Uh, so the filibuster seems to be used sometimes and not at other times. Um, and I uh, go back to my main point uh, that if we want to introduce additional um, supermajority requirements, uh, then that's something for, to do through amending the Constitution, to give senators this individual power uh, to empower the minority uh, of the Senate, um, which is already not a democratic body. Uh, because it doesn't represent the population as a whole, uh, to go beyond the Constitution and design this themselves through Senate rules, uh, I believe is unacceptable. It's just simply contrary to the text of the Constitution. That basically the senators have agreed, uh, well, instead of majority rule, we're going to agree it's going to be 60 votes in order to get anything through. And that, of course, the, the objective of that is to empower the minorities well than the majority to make sure that senators feel very powerful, regardless of whether their party controls the Senate or not. Uh, but we've seen the price to be paid for that. You basically have gridlock because you get up to 60 senators. Um, it's near impossible. And by the way, if that had been the rule, if we had allowed filibusters in all contexts, Amy Coney Barrett wouldn't be on the Supreme Court. The other two justices wouldn't be either. So in other words, they already made exceptions to the filibuster for the appointment of a justice of the Supreme right. Court who's going to serve for a lifetime. And they can squeak through with one vote. And yet we can't get voting rights legislation through because of the, of the filibuster. And it makes absolutely no sense. So not only is it contrary to the Constitution, uh, the supermajority requirement of the filibuster, but it's being applied very, very selectively and haphazardly in the strangest ways. And I would think if I were designing a system in the Senate, if you're going to allow the filibuster, the only thing you might allow the filibuster for would be such a thing as appointing a Supreme Court justice who you're going to have to live with for 30 years. Or more. Yeah. Or more. Yeah. Not voting more. rights. Yeah, you're 100% right. I mean, to get 60 out of the 100 senators, um, you know, to go along with something, especially now. We even saw, we even saw the other day with the committee for the January 6th insurrection to hold Bannon accountable for defying a congressional subpoena, only eight Republican senators went along with the Democrats. I mean, this is their power. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, I, I don't know how to fix this filibuster issue. And, you know, they're bringing debates to closure by this cloture order. I, I, don't, I, I truly don't get it. And I don't know what the right way to do it. I don't even know that if they decide to make an amendment uh, to the Constitution on this issue, I don't even know how it would look. 
Well, I don't know either, and I don't think we'll end up amending the Constitution on this. Uh, but well, what I've seen here is that uh, the majority uh, will, which is, is really what's embodied in the Constitution, and yes, we have a Senate that's not representative of the majority of the population, it's two senators per state, uh, but we're going beyond that with respect to requiring supermajorities, and I don't believe the senators uh, should be doing that at all. Uh, the filibuster simply should not be allowed. If it was going to be allowed anywhere, as I said, it would be for something such as the appointment of judges and justices of the administration for decades. Uh, that's the kind of thing where maybe you could say that uh, the Democrats should not be able to nominate uh, extreme liberals. The Republicans should not be able to nominate extreme conservatives. And we're just going to agree we're not going to confirm anybody without 60 votes. I, I would understand that. I don't think the filibuster is the right approach. For judicial nominations, I just simply say that the Senate, you know, ought to understand that, you know, they're just not going to vote in support of someone who doesn't have 60 votes. And that's just going to be the agreement. Um, but uh, we go beyond the appointment of judges and justices. I see no justification uh, when the founders said that the legislation passes by majority vote. So majority wants a tax cut or a tax increase or spending cut or spending increase. And the president agrees. That's called democracy. I want to go back for a second because we're talking about Trump and the January 6th committee now. In a recent article for MSNBC, you made the case for the appointment of a special prosecutor based on Trump's coercion and role in the January 6th insurrection. First off, if you would, explain for my listeners this whole concept of coercion and how that's a federal crime. And also, if you would explain what this prosecutor could do to ultimately bring Trump to justice and how this is different from the January 6th committee, how would this help the process? The coercion statute is uh, an amendment to the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act prohibits uh, government officials from engaging in partisan political activity in their official capacity. Uh, but most of the Hatch Act is civil and the, the penalty for engaging in partisan political activity in your um, official capacity is to be fired. But there's one provision that's criminal and it says it is a crime for anyone, whether they're the president, whether they're a non-government employee, a government employee, anyone, to seek to coerce or pressure a United States government official to engage in partisan political activity. So it's a crime for me. It'd be crime for a political party. It'd be crime for a president to put coercion, pressure, orders to engage in partisan political activity. So if the president of the United States tells the Justice Department, I need a memo saying the election was fraudulent and I want that, you are what you're doing is you're putting pressure on the Department of Justice to engage in partisan political activity. Donald Trump spent a good part of his administration pressuring the Justice Department, the State Department, and other parts of the executive branch to engage in partisan political activity to support his campaign. What happened with Pompeo and the, and the State Department? They're pressured to lean on Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden in return for military aid. There was pressure throughout the Department of Defense being applied by the President of the United States. You help my political campaign in your official capacity as United States government employee. That is criminal, that type of pressure. And this continued through the election and the aftermath of the election. Uh, and 
I filed a complaint with the Department of Justice before the election, a criminal complaint against Donald Trump for violation of the coercion statute because of everything that had been going on in the summer of 2020. And I've not heard from the Department of Justice on that criminal complaint. And guess what happened? After the election, it just got a lot worse. So this is one of the many um, apparent crimes committed by former President Trump and people working for him. Uh, and this is why we need a special counsel to investigate. We're not going to expect Merrick Garland or political appointees of Joe Biden to investigate Joe Biden's political opponent. But we do expect them to appoint a special prosecutor who's going to look into what happened going all the way back to the spring of 2017, the firing of James Comey. Uh, and it's critically important that that special prosecutor be appointed. Now, let me ask you this, Richard. Trump recently handed Democrats a gift for the midterm elections when he went out and, of course, stupidly stated that Republicans won't vote unless 2020 election fraud is, and I quote, fixed. In all fairness, he needs to be fixed. If he tanks another election for the GOP, do you personally think that this will be when Republicans finally say, I freaking had enough push back against this MAGA agenda, and then just go elsewhere? Well, I hope so. Um, because what we have is we have a group of people who have no understanding of objective truth and facts. It's one thing to disagree on politics. And uh, to disagree as to who should have won that election and to vote for different people. But it is so abundantly obvious that Joe Biden won the election by 8 million votes. But this is not a Bush v. Gore situation. We're arguing about 400 votes in Florida uh, and different, uh, different ways of counting the votes. This is 8 million votes. And, the, and Joe Biden won several states more than he needed to win to win the election. This is not as close as the Kennedy uh, versus Nixon election, 1960. Matter of fact, this is not as close as a lot of the elections we've had. This was basically a blowout for Joe Biden. And it's very clear that Joe Biden won the election. Those are facts. Those are objective facts. We disagree about politics. But when you have people there who don't understand objective truth and say, well, they're just alternative facts, as Kellyanne Conway said, that is extremely dangerous to have that kind of rhetoric in a democracy. And that's what happened during the Weimar Republic is you had more and more of that kind of rhetoric about alternative facts, completely made up facts, with just no basis in truth. Uh, conspiracy theories being pushed. And this is a very dangerous situation. It happens on extreme right and extreme left. I just discovered this morning a um, some blog post by somebody I think is, looks like a far lefty who uh, said, well, the reason Merrick Garland is not appointing a special prosecutor is some sort of a Jewish conspiracy. What? You know, people are making stuff up at all whole cloth here. And this is what destroys democracies. And so when you have politicians like Donald Trump who don't understand objective truth and who push conspiracy theories, that is leading our country in a very dangerous direction. And that is at, at a minimum. I mean, the Republican Party needs to stand up for that, against that, and let them run someone far to the right that probably lose, like a Barry Goldwater. But at least Goldwater didn't have crazy conspiracy theories. And we've got to get the Republican Party back to sanity. Yeah, except the problem is, I want you to think about this for a second. 35 Republicans voted for the January 6th commission. Now, of course, that's both the, that's the, the House and the Senate. 
that's not much, right? 35, and I think that it was only something like um, 10 Republicans supported the impeachment of Donald Trump. Once again, that's not enough. Instead of worrying about the party, they should worry about the United States of America. I mean, honestly, when they were bringing the actions against Bill Clinton, certainly what Clinton had done was wrong. And, you know, they obviously, you know, he had lied. And so the impeachment process continued. But we're talking about a man, a president, a former president, who was hell-bent on destroying our democracy, who was hell-bent on not being the president, but on being a dictator, a monarch, a supreme leader, a man who has nothing but admiration for the likes of Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, Duarte, um, you know, you name it, um, Mohammed bin Salman, because he doesn't want to ever have to run. He wants to have full and total control over the United States. He wants to be like what he perceives, which is in Vladimir Putin, a president who's basically president in name only, that owns 25% of every single company in Russia. Trump is already calculating numbers in his mind that if Jeff Bezos is worth $205 billion and he then takes 25% of Bezos's company and 25% of Bill Gates's company and then every other billionaire, so, right? Uh, <laughs> he takes it from Elon Musk and you start adding it up all down the road. Technically, he will be the richest and of course the most powerful man in the planet especially considering he would control all levers of our military. So this is what's going on in this man's crazy head. And yet Republicans refuse to understand or at least acknowledge for whatever selfish reasons that they contain that this man wants to destroy the Constitution. He wants to turn the United States technically into China. Well, this is um, the choice we have to make in this country. Do you want to live in a democracy with a free economy uh, where uh, people can uh, start businesses and succeed on their own um, without having to kowtow to the government? Or do you want a situation like China where the businesses that succeed are either controlled by the government directly or indirectly? You know, as you have a private company in China, but guess what? They are in good stand with the government, often government employees, government officials and their families are given stock and special positions. Uh, and I will say that throughout human history, that model, the Chinese model, uh, the Russian model, uh, was prevalent. That in most countries, um, the economic power and the political power were concentrated. Whether you have Marxism, which is one variation on that theme, and the USSR, or the pseudo-Marxism of communist China, which of course is really about elevating a capitalist class of communist party officials, ironically. Oh, or you go back into the mercantilistic era uh, in Europe, which uh, Adam Smith uh, rebelled against. And our country is founded to have a government of limited power and free enterprise and freedom of speech. By the people, by the people, for the people. Exactly. 
And that, that's what the United States is about. And the Republican Party of all parties, the Republican Party, which opposed uh, centralization of power in the government, even under the Franklin Roosevelt administration, and even opposed government regulation of industry uh, so strongly for so many decades to come out and support a president who wants to use political power to, con uh, to enhance his own personal wealth. To take so us let me to ask the you this, Richard, let me, Sure, but let me just jump in and ask you this, because it's right on the point. What's your overall panic level regarding these upcoming midterms? Because the idea of Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker of the House, again, right, with Trump ruling by fiat from behind the scenes of Mar-a-Lago, to me is terrifying, but it's actually quite possible. If you would, just add on to what you were telling me. Well, it's it's going to be a, a difficult situation. Uh, the Democrats uh, need to convince um, the um, the voters that they can get something done, and so they need to work a deal and get you know get an economic package through Congress. Uh, that's critically important. Uh, not to be arguing about what the ideal package is, but get something done. Uh, the um, Republicans are trying to seek control of the messaging on a whole range of issues. And unfortunately, it's the right wing of the Republican Party. If it was a moderate wing of the Republican Party, I'd be in there with them uh, and uh, arguing for uh, uh, you know, a number of reforms that are critically important in our government. Uh, but it's the far right wing of the Republican Party uh, that is simply uh, is spewing false information, uh, talking about Marxism all the time. We don't have a threat from Marxism. What we have a threat from is authoritarianism, which is similar to Marxism, which is Donald Trump. Uh, and so the, the, the problem here is that voters need to be educated about the great dangers to our democracy and to our economy. Uh, by putting anyone who supports Donald Trump back into power. If the Republican Party wants to get real about public policy and debate about free market economics versus regulation and the things we used to debate about, okay. But that's not what they're doing right now. So, you know, Richard, you talk about, and as we're winding down the hour, you know, I just have this last question because you bring up this far-right extremist group in the GOP so just switching the gears for a quick moment, if you would, discuss your role representing Toby Morton, who's filing a complaint against Colorado Representative Lauren Boebert, who is a far-right extremist, for using Colorado police officers to assist her with retaliation against political critics, including his cameraman, right, in a lawful filming near Shooter's Grill in Rifle, Colorado. What's happening in that case? And what's the potential exposure for Lauren Boebert? Because the hope is that it'll stop this right-wing craziness once and for all. Well, uh, we, we are going to ask the Colorado Attorney General to investigate and the Department of Justice and then, uh, of course, uh, uh, the um, House um, Ethics Committee. But starting with the Colorado Attorney General, which I think is the, is the top priority here, you have law enforcement uh, state and local law enforcement that appears to be in the back pocket of a, of a politician. That is a completely unacceptable role for the police force. Uh, we are not in the days of the Dukes of Hazard and Boss Hogg, who was telling <laughs> the sheriffs who to arrest and who not to arrest 
I mean, that's not the way it works in a democracy. We can't tolerate that. And the Attorney General of Colorado cannot. So if it is true that Congresswoman Boebert got the information about the license plate of the cameraman and uh, that the name of the cameraman from the police, because that's not information that you and I can get. The public doesn't have access to say, well, I go on the web and I'll find out who owns this license, the car for this license plate. That's information that the police have. And she got it and put it out there on the internet. The question is, who gave it to her? And she had referenced uh, sending a, a police officer over to the scene because she didn't like being filmed. Well, they had every right to film her and film her restaurant. They were not trespassing. And to threaten to call the police and then use the police to get information, private information, put up in the internet. So now the cameraman feels threatened. You know, the question is, who inside the police department is working with the politician? to do that. And apparently the sheriff's office out there wasn't enforcing the COVID-19 restrictions against her restaurant, Shooter's Grill in Rifle, Colorado there. So that needs to be investigated. Law enforcement must be impartial. And we have, we're going through a very difficult time now with respect to confidence in police departments for a whole lot of reasons. We don't need to defund the police. We need to reform the police. And if we have police departments or county sheriff's offices in the back pocket of a U.S. congresswoman in Colorado, the Colorado Attorney General needs to fix that. And then she's got a whole host of other problems that ought to be investigated by the January 6th Commission. What was she involved with with respect to that? And the Department of Justice. So we're just beginning this process of asking for investigations. And then we're going to take it from there. Well, that's, of course, one of the precursors to this whole authoritarianism uh, scenario that Donald Trump is showing that these people have such impunity for the system all around. I mean, as a cameraman, could you imagine? I know what it feels like to be on that side where they put all your information out there when you have the president of the United States attacking you individually and your family. And it's a very uncomfortable situation. Um, we saw when Matt Gaetz tried to do that by threatening my family with obstruction of justice. Again, another thing that Merrick Garland, and if you're listening, get off your ass and start doing something, needs to get out there because all of these folks need to be accountable and held responsible for their own dirty deeds. So let me thank you, Richard Painter, for coming on to Maya Culp again. And I hope to see you again soon because... There's so much that's going to be going on up until the midterm elections and then post all the way through the grift of Trump in 2024. So let me thank you. And um, I hope to see you again very, very soon, my friend. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. And you be well. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking with Richard Painter today, it's obvious that this is a man for whom the rule of law is paramount. He has spent the majority of his career working at the highest levels of government, ensuring that the presidency, or at least the office of the presidency, was treated with uncommon respect and dignity. But in the age of Trump, we know that all went out the window. The idea that there would be an ethics czar in Trump world is fucking laughable. His idea of ethics was to wipe his ass with the Constitution. Many hoped that when Trump became president, that the enormity of the occasion and the solemnity of the office would force Trump to find his moral compass. But that was wishful thinking. Those of us who knew Donald Trump knew that what you see is what you get. 
Trump has spent his life getting away with everything because he's willing to go farther than anyone else. He has treated the presidency the same exact way. Thus, he has become a kind of unstoppable plague, a political herpes that refuses to go away. By having no shame or compunction to lie or foment violence, he cannot be taken down by ordinary measures. The Richard Painters of the world are to him mosquitoes to be squashed. Trump will not be shamed into retirement, nor will he go gentle into this good night. He will continue to lie and rage until the very bitter end. He has only one choice to survive, and that's to regain the presidency and punish those who sought to punish him. And that's why he might survive. The people chasing Trump obey laws and believe in truth. But Trump is Trump, willing to burn the whole fucking place down to save his own skin. I don't know how you fight back against that onslaught and come out unscathed. These are strange days indeed, folks, and thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, and it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my mayor.